what the work is worth, how we make enough together. I have in classic fashion buried the lead, which is you can now support this work with a paid subscription. More below, of course. I'm so excited and grateful to write here. Thanks for being a subscriber and for considering joining in a new way. It's time I revealed to you one of my most controversial opinions, judging from the shouting matches it's gotten me into. It drives me bonkers whenever people criticize and refuse to donate to nonprofits for paying their executives too much money. Now, is executive pay generally out of control in this country world? Ob. But how does it make any sense to take up our crusade against high salaries, beginning in the realm of organizations that do some of the most important work on the planet? The rejoinder is supposed to be that we want our money to go to the people and places who need it most, as if the actual workers tending to those needs are only incidental. As if their skills, experience, and knowledge can be found lying around on the ground. As if wanting the ability to live sustainably and beautifully somehow becomes suspect when your work is complex, demanding, and necessary. We want to treat our choice of where to send a donation as a marketplace while expecting leaders of the organizations competing for our donations to operate on some higher plane. In his book, Bullshit Jobs, David Graeber muses that this attitude is born out of resentment toward people whose jobs have, quote, meaning on the part of those whose jobs literally don't accomplish anything at all, which is most of us. Harsh, but it rings true. Doing meaningless work can be depleting, but doing meaningful work also demands much of us. And meaning is not actually a resource we can call upon to fill us back up. Tons of people go into social justice or service fields expecting to live on meaning, then crash and burn by age 25 or 30. Their jobs don't even pay them enough to allow them to show up well to the job, let alone to a full and varied life. And besides, the organizations they leave are led by people who are willing to work for bad pay. Those with martyr complexes, workers who are underqualified or underperforming, or a homogenous army of people privileged enough to work in exchange for meaning, trying to make decisions on behalf of the needy and oppressed. And to return to my original point, they've had to choose their CEOs off the D-list. I think this one continually riles me up because it reveals so much about what we believe, about money, giving, what an organization really needs to thrive, charity and power, and how we solve or mitigate our society's biggest problems. I find a lot of joy in thinking about resources creatively. What can we get rid of? What can we recycle? What surprising place or project might offer us the margin we need? And how can we unlearn the constant capitalist refrain of growth in favor of depth, transformation, strengthening interconnection, empowering others, and creating ripple effects? These are essential questions for escaping the traps we get caught in when we think our only option is to get more. And money is not escapable. 
People need to participate in systems of exchange to meet their basic needs. We can't plant gardens without buying, bartering, or begging the seeds and the travel and the watering can. Jesus was clear that we can't talk about justice in flowery language if we never get around to the realities of distributing actual currency, which so often translates to actual power. Whether we like it or not, money is usually what determines how we organize most of the other resources in our lives. It can be a lot easier to, quote, use resources creatively in groups of people that have a little bit of margin to take the long way around. And collectively, money is how we tell people what we think they're worth. Work can be fulfilling, joyful, creative, connecting, purposeful, enjoyable, and still be really hard. Paid work is different from volunteering because it requires commitment on terms other than just our own. Parts of it might fill us up, but parts of it also take from us. It might involve risk. It might involve sacrifice. We struggle with it. We get better at it. We develop skills and expertise and relationships through it. And the money is more than just the thing that makes us reconsider when we're all but ready to quit. The money is one way others say to us, what you do here matters to me. I've been writing all afternoon in an attempt to excavate the reasons I have written on the internet for 10 years without trying very hard to make money at it. It used to be because I bought into the idea that anything anyone could remotely be said to do for love shouldn't be appropriately remunerated. Since then, I've learned a lot about how, practically, that results in only very privileged people getting to devote their limited time to that thing. And as I've put a lot of sweat and tears into getting better at this thing, it gets harder and harder to argue that its primary value is merely to myself. More recently, I think I've left the question of money a little bit off to the side because I've come to think of my family's little life since I got sick as an experiment in enough. My body had had enough of stress and getting more and being all things to all people. What if we approached all we had, our money and our community, our time and the beauty and peace of slowness, as if we trusted God had given us enough? And alongside the possibility that this might matter to someone else, the work of writing for a certain season has itself been enough. It was something I could do when my body wouldn't cooperate with much else. So when people have written to ask how they can support me, I've talked about long-term visions and all the pieces of a successful and happy and fulfilling career that money can't buy. What I've also learned about enough is that it's flexible. It can contain different needs in different situations and times. For me, more than simplicity or downward mobility, enough has been a helpful rubric, but not a punishing metric. It's inherently full of questions, and that keeps me from turning it into a quest for perfection. Now that we're having a baby in August, our family's experiment in Enough is changing pretty radically. I've also found a rhythm of writing or podcasting weekly here on Substack for several months. 
And I like podcasting a lot more than I expected to. And even my very minimal show takes a lot of work. All of this makes it a natural time to start a paid subscription option. If this work matters to you, now you can support it and my family as a patron and partner. As I've been considering what this will look like, I've thought a lot about how we practice enough in our digital lives. No one is really clamoring for more content for content's sake from more frazzled creators. So Hopeful Cynic is keeping the same weekly frequency. Half the posts will now be behind a paywall for paid subscribers. The free list will receive one essay slash mega post and one podcast interview per month. So what exactly do I get with a paid subscription? Weekly essays from me, including secret audio episodes if you like to have the listening option. And what, again, do I get for free? A monthly essay post and a monthly Crumbling Empires interview podcast episode. Didn't you just say you're about to have a kid? Yes, I am working ahead on posts for a four-month leave. During that time, paid subscribers will receive one real-time essay or update a month. Substack also lets us pause subscriptions in case of a foreseen or unforeseen break. What if I can't afford it? Just let me know. No long explanations or apologies required. What are other ways to support you? Share hopeful cynic posts with people you like. Buy my book. Tell someone else about it. Bring it to your Sunday school class or book club. Or share a quote you liked on social media. Review the book on Amazon. Say nice things to me. I sit down to write every week, hoping that these words bring you something of loveliness and of use. If this is work that has mattered to you, join in on the new tier. I'm so full of gratitude to do this work and that we can make enough for each other. Peace, love, bread and wine, Lindsay. And here are the footnotes. I'll admit this is a little complicated in a creative field where the nature of the thing is to spend 10,000 hours producing bad work and is anyone really obligated to pay for bad work? And would the process actually produce the same result if not driven by some sort of alternate love and compulsion more than by a steady paycheck? The fact still remains that you have a lot more time for love and compulsion and a lot more brain space for creativity if your basic needs are met. Number two, my writing has covered its own expenses like computers, web hosting, and travel to conferences for several years. And my book advance with some ghostwriting work definitely made my writing business its most money ever last year, which the IRS using the home office deduction still determined to be zero dollars. And will that monthly update in real time after the baby comes be coherent? Maybe.